Well, this morning, this gospel lesson was Luke's version of the Beatitudes. And if you are familiar with the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know that Matthew has the market, so to speak, on the Beatitudes. It is Matthew's version that we know well, and not so much Luke's version, of these sayings that Jesus taught about what the kingdom of God should be like here on earth as it is in heaven. And, not that we're running a popularity contest here today between Matthew and, and Luke, but, but it's leading me towards the direction of the point I want to make for us today to look at the comparisons of the two. And so, just to let you know, Matthew uses the Beatitudes to begin Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as he calls it, which, which Jesus went up on a hill to speak down to the people standing on the valley below. Luke uses these Beatitudes to begin what he calls, or has become known, as the Sermon on the Plain, because in it, Jesus comes from the mountain and goes down to the plain the flat area where the people are. Matthew lists nine of the Beatitudes to begin uh, that sermon. Luke just uses four of them instead. Matthew's Beatitudes are focused more on faith and the person. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But Luke focuses more on the physical need. Blessed are those who are hungry now, he says, speaking about the stomach instead of the soul. In Matthew, it said, uh, blessed are those that are poor in spirit. But Luke says about the person, blessed are the poor. And it makes sense Luke was a physician and more concerned, perhaps, with the physical needs of people. Finally, Matthew starts the Sermon on the Mount with these nine Beatitudes and then moves on to other subject matter. But Luke follows the Beatitudes with four woes that I read for you. And those woes are, are curses or warnings, if you will, to the listener. And so Luke takes a harder push with these Beatitudes than Matthew does. And it tells us a few things about Jesus and about following him that we need to know. And the first of those is that Jesus came down to be among the people. You heard it in the scripture that, that Jesus went down with them, meaning the disciples, to a level place there on the plain to be among the people. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people as well. And it says further in verse 18 and 19, they had come to hear him, to be healed of their diseases, to be calmed in spirits, and Everyone was trying to touch him to be healed. Jesus had been up on the mountain with his disciples. You heard the story. He had chosen the twelve among them, the apostles, and then with them and all of the other followers, he went down among the people. And what did he do? He began to heal and to minister to the needs of the crowds that had come from all different regions, miles around. Jesus was showing his followers, first and foremost, that they need to be among the people. They need to be meeting the needs of the world. Luke puts that emphasis on this, on this story and on these, these beatitudes because Jesus' intended purpose was to come into the world, was it not? 
John's Gospel says that God became flesh and dwelt among them. Who was them? The world, us, all of humanity. Jesus was sent into the world so that God would come down in a way that people would would relate to and understand and see the power of God in a way that they never had before, in a very personal way. Jesus came down among the people and he took his disciples. And those of us that claim to be his followers need to remember that that's where the church is at its best, when it's not in the walls of the church or in some ivory tower of, of thought and theology or in some back room somewhere where no one else knows what's going on. The church at its very best is being the hands and the feet of Christ out in the world, in the community. A couple of weeks ago, we had a first missions committee meeting of the year talking about 2019 and and how can that committee lead the church in, in being out in the world, in the community. And some great things for emphases for uh, each month of the year, making, making uh, bags of food and toiletry for homeless folks that all of us can take with us on Sunday and hand out to people at, at stop signs where we see them. Outreaching into the community to do, elderly, uh, to do yard work for elderly folks in the community and members. A mission trip down east this summer to help with flood relief, to make a difference there. Going to serve a meal Saturday night downtown at Church Under the Bridge. Making and sending gift boxes to kids in Armenia that have much needed supplies. Emphasizing food collection for for backpacks with food to send home with kids at the elementary school that are hungry. Supporting the holiday food drive as the food pantry gets filled up at the end of the year. All of these are examples and things that are being planned to help us get out more from inside the church. And why do we need to do that? Because Jesus was among the people. And he called his disciples there and he showed them what it meant to see a new vision of the world, not one where everybody just kept to their own, but where joy, love was shared and needs were met. It is what we pray for every Sunday, isn't it? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we get out among the people, so we will spread that kingdom and share it. Another thing about this passage and Luke's take on these blessings, these beatitudes and the woes, is that he distinguishes in this passage between the crowd of people that are there and the disciples the crowd of people that had come from all different places, and the disciples. And he treats them differently. Did you notice? He addresses the needs and helps those of the crowd, all of those people that had come from miles around. He did not withhold concern or care or love or healing for them all. Because Jesus came to die for the world, and he wanted to show his disciples that. But did you notice that? There's not much said about whether the disciples were healed or, or what he did for them. Instead, Luke points out, that after Jesus is done with the work of the crowd, he, he talks to the disciples instead. It says very plainly, looking at his disciples, Jesus said, blessed are you 
and then woe to you. Now, I take that kind of personal and to heart that, that these comments of Jesus and these teachings are pointed at me as a Christian. There are many people in the world that may know of Jesus and many that do not. And, and Jesus is not concerned with them, but he's concerned with us in being faithful to his kingdom's work by following his example and hearing his teachings. Well, it's not the first time I've ever been challenged in my, my understanding of Jesus. The old saying is that if you aren't conflicted by the teachings of Jesus as a Christian, then you must not be reading them enough. It's true, there's a lot of hard sayings that Jesus teaches and confronts and challenges his followers with more than he does the world. Are we willing to accept those and to hear them as gospel truth? Because it's very easy for us to get turned around in our mind of why Jesus came and what he came to teach and his purpose for being here and his place in our life if we, we just go with our own assumptions instead of the gospel word. It reminds me of the old story of, of a Baptist preacher and a, a Catholic priest that end up on a flight together on a plane, and they meet one another and know what each other does. And as they're in flight and the, the person, the uh, attendant coming down the aisle, offers a snack and a drink, the priest says, well, I'll have a glass of wine. And she gets one for him. And the Baptist preacher says, well, I'll just have a soft drink. And he, he points out pretty candidly and pointedly at the priest because Christians ought not to partake in any alcohol. Well, the priest heard that and said, well, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that, that Jesus drank wine. And the only rebuttal that the, the Baptist preacher could come up with was, well, I know, but I probably would have thought more of him if he had not instead. Well, you could exchange that with any denomination and any preacher or priest, but the point is, is that the gospel message is the gospel message. It tells it as it was and as it is. And if we are followers of Christ, we hear what it is that Jesus said and we take it to heart and we live it. We're challenged, aren't we, to, to hear these hard sayings and think somehow it doesn't apply to us. And yet, being a Christian is a very conscious choice that we all have to make each and every day. Are we going to live it and hear it or not? Being a Christian is not just a birthright or a membership in some club because we were, were raised up in the church. It's something that we have to choose consciously for ourselves. It's not a label that we can spot about someone based on what they're wearing or how it is that they appear. Being a, a Christian, a follower of Christ, is not a brand that we, we buy. It is not something that, that is just a box to check off of our list. Being a Christian is not being a member of a fraternity or sorority, though it does require commitment and pledge. There's much more to it than that. Being a Christian is a conscious choice to hear, plain and simple, the teachings of Christ and to follow them. And Jesus calls us all to do that as his disciples. 
I'm imagining that we're all here this morning because we're not in the crowd, but we're drawn closer to Christ and what He has to offer. And we hear these teachings, and we may be challenged, but we know that there is truth in them and there is life in them as well. That's the last thing. The third thing this morning is that Jesus reminds us in these teachings to lay up our treasures in heaven and not in earth where, as it was said elsewhere, where things would rust and fall apart. Jesus reminds us there's a silver lining difficulties of faith and being faithful to him and always having our ear attuned and our eyes opened to the poor and to the hurting and to the hungry and to the needy. Jesus reminds us that we should rejoice in that day and leap for joy when Christ shall come, because great will be our reward in heaven. And so we are called to toil and to care for and to hear the needs of the world around us. And we're challenged by that. At least I know I am. I'm okay with Jesus saying, blessed are those who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. But, but I'm really challenged with him saying, but woe to you that are rich, for you have already received your comfort. And I think of all I have and I feel guilty for that. I'm okay with Jesus saying, blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. But I'm really challenged when he says, woe to you. Or be careful, those of you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. I'm okay with Jesus saying, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh then. But I'm really challenged when he says, woe to those of you that laugh now, because then you will mourn and weep. And I'm good with Jesus saying, blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of me because you are my follower and my person. But I'm really challenged when he says, Woe to you, when everybody speaks well of you, for that is how the ancestors treated the false prophets. Jesus challenging me once again to put everything in perspective and measure the world and all that is in it in my entire life according to what he says the kingdom of God ought to be. Well, I don't think that Jesus means that having good food to eat is bad or having enough to eat is a, a sin. And I, I don't think that he's saying that if we're going through a struggle and, and crying right now, that, that that's a, a bad thing or that if we're laughing about anything, you, we certainly are going to be condemned in any way. I think Jesus is pointing out the opposites and saying you need to be aware that there are others in the world that are not in the place you are, and you need to care and show compassion to them all. Jesus is challenging us to do that and to put it all into perspective. Can we do that? Can we do that? Not if we're left to our own vices, I think. I came across an interesting illustration I'll close with this morning about that. And it has to do with a man that lived uh, well over 100 years ago, uh, actually died over 100 years ago, uh, Andrew Carnegie. You've probably heard his name. He was one of the great, um, the great industrialists, if you will, of the 18th century. 
he was uh, a very interesting person because during his childhood, he went from rags to riches, literally. He was born in Scotland, and at age 13, because of a famine there and his family being destitute, they immigrated to the U.S., Pennsylvania area. Um, as a teen, he had to work in the basement of a factory firing a, a boiler. That was throwing wood and coal, I think, into a boiler to keep the, the factory running. And there wasn't much time for education. Uh, he was largely uneducated, but developed a, a passion for reading and learning because he was inspired by a local man in his town named Colonel James Anderson, who opened his personal library of 400 uh, volumes of books to working boys each Saturday night. And learning how to read, Andrew Carnegie took advantage of those, and he, he promised as a young boy or a teenager, if wealth ever came to me, and I'm quoting now, I would see to it that other poor boys might receive opportunities similar to those for which we were indebted to this noble man. And so, with a lot of passion for reading and for learning, being self-taught, along with a, a strong work ethic and a perseverance and sharp intellect, Carnegie created a lot of opportunities and a lot of money through his life in business. He began with, um, with um, telegraphing and doing that job for the railroads and invested what little he had, and it began to grow. And over time, he invested in a whole host of things having to do with that, train bridges and rail cars and eventually railways themselves. But what he really killed it at and where he really made his $350 million in the 1800s, if you can imagine that, was in steel, what is known as U.S. steel today. He made just an unbelievable and ungodly amount. He became filthy, stinking rich, and he knew it. And he was worried and concerned about how that would affect his character and who he became. Now, uh, I'm not preaching a sermon on Andrew, on Andrew Carnegie today, um, but simply to say that a man with that much wealth and power and that much license to be able to do whatever he wanted in the world knew that his appetite needed to be curbed. And he learned early on in bringing, being brought up in the church that caring for uh, the needs of other people was a way to keep that all in check. Uh, in the early 1900s, he died in 1919. The last 18 years of his life, he gave away $350 million to various causes, such as hospitals and organizations, education, all kinds of things, arts, sciences, endowments, and trust. And his lasting legacy, most of all, would be, would be 3,000 public libraries that he took all of that money and built in the English-speaking world. Why? Because when he was a teenager, someone had shared with him the gift of reading, and he, he fell in love with it, and he learned from it, and he wanted to give it all back because he knew there were others that did not have the opportunities, just like he didn't when he was a kid. 
In North Carolina alone, he uh, footed the bill for 10 public libraries, nine institutional libraries. That means on college campuses locally, locally. In 1902, the main library in downtown Greensboro was built free of charge by him. 1904, the State Normal and Industrial College Library, UNCG. Uh, this library was built in 1908, Guilford College is was. And my point today is that our Andrew Carnegie said this about, about riches and about wealth and how it had the potential to change him or it had the opportunity to change the world. And he wrote, man must have no idol for the amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry and more debasing than the worship of money. Whatever I engage in, I will push at inordinately. But therefore, I should be careful to choose that life will be the most elevating in its character. And he wrote something uh, called the gospel of, of giving or of philanthropy. And all because he knew that without remembering those that were less fortunate than him, the world would be lesser than it was and he would be a different character of person than God desired him to be. We need to hear their gospel message today as hard and difficult as it is to know that we are to not put our treasures in the things of this world, but instead to put them in the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven through helping and blessing other people.